something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I won't let my body outweigh, outweigh everything that I'm made of. Won't spend my life trying to change. I'm learning to love who I am. I am strong, I feel free. I know every part of me is beautiful, and I will always outweigh. If you feel it, put your hands in the air. Show some love to the mirror while you're there. Let's take it one day at a time, because you and I outweigh. Welcome back to Outweigh. Today's guest, I'm so, so, so excited for you to meet. Some of you may be familiar with her work. It's Dr. Neff who is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on the topic of self-compassion. She was really one of the first to define and measure it almost 20 years ago. And she is here to help us really utilize self-compassion while learning about her new book, Fierce Self-Compassion, that has so much wisdom to offer, I think, when it comes to how us women can, exactly what you say in the title, harness kindness to speak up, claim our power and thrive. So thanks for this amazing book, which we're going to link in the show notes and kind of breaking down self-compassion for those of us who are new to it. Great. Happy to be here, Lisa. Yeah, it's an important topic, how we can use self-compassion to relate to health and our bodies and eating and all that. So just to kick us off in your book, you talk about the three elements of self-compassion and what self-compassion is. Yeah. So there are three components. And for my model, you you really need all three to be healthy. 
Uh, the one that's easiest to understand is simply self-kindness, right? So self-compassion means treating ourselves with the same warmth, care, concern, support that we would naturally show to a friend or a loved one. Unfortunately, we usually don't show ourselves the same care or support we show to loved ones. Typically, we're much harsher and harder on ourselves than we are to other people. And so with self-compassion, we, we turn that around and we, we also care about ourselves. We also see ourselves as worthy of compassion and support, understanding more encouragement if we need to make a change. So kindness is one element, but there's also two other elements that are, that are very important. So mindfulness, actually, from my, from my point of view, is a part of self-compassion. And in particularly self-compassion is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So when it's aimed outward, it's concerned with the alleviation of other suffering. When it's aimed inward, it's concerned with our own suffering. We want to be well. We want to be healthy. We want to be happy. And in order to do that, the first step of that really is to be mindfully aware of when we're in pain, emotional pain, pain, physical pain. If we're just like stiff upper lip, don't complain, you just barrel through. We don't notice we're suffering or struggling. We actually can't give ourselves compassion. It'd be like a friend who called you up and said, hey, Lisa, I really need to talk to you. I'm upset. And you're like, don't have time for it. I'm too busy, right? We kind of hmm. do that with ourselves. That's, or, or either we ignore our pain or the other common thing we do is we get fused with it. We get lost in it. Like our whole awareness is filled with, I'm so awful. My life is so awful. We kind of drown in it to the point we have no perspective to step outside of ourselves and say, hey, you're having a really hard time. Is there anything I can do to help? So mindfulness is actually needs to be built into self-compassion. And then the third element, which is really important and which is what distinguishes self-compassion from self-pity is a sense of common humanity, right? So um, the word compassion in the Latin, passion means to suffer, come means with. So there's a sense of connectedness and compassion that feels really different than pity, which may be, you know, if I pity you, it means I feel separate from you. I'm looking down on you. And if I have self-pity, it means I feel isolated. It's just me. I'm the only one in the world who's struggling. So self-compassion means we just really frame our situation in light of the human experience. Everyone's imperfect. Everyone struggles. Everyone's unique. You know, some people do struggle more than others, absolutely, but everyone's struggle is worthy of a compassionate response. And so that connectedness can be very, very important in terms of dealing with a lot of the struggles we go through in life. Thank you for breaking that down in such a meticulous way. A lot of our listeners are moms or daughters, and I know we have some men as well listening, uh -huh. but regardless of who they are, they're all really good people that are really good at caring for those around them, whether it's their siblings, partners, parents, uh, maybe their kids as well. But when it comes to being able to apply that inward, it's like they've got no ability to do so. I think that's most people, to be honest. They have the ability to do so. There's, there's a couple of reasons why they don't. Uh, one is cultural. We aren't taught that this is a good thing. I mean, when you were growing up, did anyone ever say, hey, make sure you're a good friend to yourself? Really just, you know, think about supporting yourself with warmth and encouragement. You know, no one tells us that. Uh, and then there's also some physiological reasons why it's difficult. It's not hard, but it's not instinctual. When, when we like when we look at in the mirror and we don't like what we see, for instance, we feel threatened. Right? We feel like, oh, something's wrong. You know, maybe I'm going to be unsafe. Maybe people will reject me. And so we go into threat defense mode, fight flight or freeze. 
we, we try to get away from the problem, which is of course us. So we fight ourselves with self-criticism. We beat ourselves up thinking somehow that's going to make us change and be able to keep safe. Or it means we're going to somehow um, kind of, you know, beat other people to the punch. If we criticize ourselves, it won't hurt so much when other people criticize us. Or we flee into shame. Like we imagine the judgments of others and like we hang our head in shame. That's also a safety behavior. Or we freeze, we get stuck. It's like, I, you know, we just go over, over and over in our head, this sense of I'm, I'm not worthy or whatever it is. Again, these are natural safety behaviors. They evolve to keep us safe. They actually aren't very safe, but we do this naturally. Whereas the other safety system is, is called the, the care response, right? And this actually evolved to use with other people, with our children or our group members. And so in this case, when we feel connected with others, we feel bonded, we feel like close, we feel that sense of warmth and belonging, that also helps us feel safe. But usually it evolved with other people, with, again, our children or our group members. So what we're having to do with self-compassion is something that feels a little awkward at first, <laughs> is we have to use the care system, which evolved for others with ourselves. It feels a little weird at first, although of course it doesn't feel at all weird to us to call ourselves mean names. It should, but we're just used to it. So, you know, that's what we're doing, but the system is there and it's not rocket science. We know how to be kind. We know how to be supportive. We know how to be encouraging if we need to make a change. We just have to kind of consciously say, okay, I'm going to choose to treat myself that way. And the research shows the effects are just phenomenal in terms of how much, how helpful it is. You said so many amazing points so quickly <laughs> that, I, that I was taking notes. I actually want to encourage our listeners to maybe take notes or listen to this twice because there's so much to unpack, digest, and let settle into our body. But one thing that you said was that when we look in the mirror and we say, oh, I look disgusting and we're beating others to the punch. Like yes. if we know it, we've built this protective barrier so that if yes. other person, people are thinking it or saying it, yes. we're buffered. And that is so interesting because we a hundred percent do that. And I think we do it out loud too. As women, we're very quick in front of other women, maybe in front of our partners as well to say, I look disgusting almost to protect against the other person thinking it or saying it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, it's natural. We shouldn't beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up. It really, it's really quite innocent. It's a safety behavior, but it's not, again, it's not very effective. The end result is it tends to make things worse. You know, on the other hand, we don't have to say, I look like a Victoria's Secret model. You know, we don't have, we can mm -hmm. just, it was really interesting. What the research shows is that when we model self-compassion, like, yeah, so I'm not perfect, but you know, I look pretty healthy or I'm, I'm happy with who I am. We're mm -hmm. actually giving other people, especially other women, permission to do the same. When we mm -hmm. actually, instead of modeling, oh, look at the cellulite on my thighs, we model, wow, you know, yeah, I'm feeling okay about my body. I'm feeling pretty healthy. I'm feeling pretty strong. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but that's okay. Who said I'm supposed to be perfect? Then you're giving other people permission to do the same for themselves. To just exist. Yeah, exactly. You began to talk about the inner critic, yeah. which we're all here very familiar with. That yes. voice in our head that is telling us that we're not enough, that we're not doing enough, that no matter how hard we try, we still mess it up. Yeah. But you started to say something, if we could dive a little bit deeper, does this criticism, according to the research, so you know, uh -huh. that's why Dr. Neff is so amazing. She's really looking at the science, the research. What does the research say about the self-criticism leading to change? 
Right. So first of all, so self-criticism, it kind of works. I mean, yeah, there are people who've gone through, gone through law school or med school through harsh self-criticism. So we don't want to deny that it works, but it works kind of the way corporal punishment works. If you want a child to comply with your rules, if you, you know, use like the paddle, which is, you, it used to be the, we used to say, spare the rod, spoil the child. It works for short-term compliance, but it actually has a lot of long-term negative side effects. So a self-criticism in particular kind of works. It may have you work a little harder, but it has all these negative side effects. For instance, um, it creates anxiety, right? So when you know you're going to try something new and you know that if you fail, you're going to really criticize yourself, it's going to be make, make you more anxious about trying. So it can lead to fear of failure. It can lead to performance anxiety, which actually undermines your ability to perform. What it also does is when you, when you do fail, I mean, and everyone's going to fail. That's how we learn, right? It's a truism. Failure is our best teacher. And yet somehow we think it shouldn't be true. So if you're very self-critical and, and if you just start criticizing yourself or beating yourself up when you fail, what you're going to do is you're going to put yourself in a state of shame. And shame shuts down our ability to learn. You know, shame is not exactly a great learning mindset. Whereas if you're self-compassionate, it's like, okay, I failed. Everyone fails. No, no, no shame in failing. What can I learn from this? And when, you're, when you allow yourself to learn, that actually is much more effective in terms of um, trying again. So people who are more self-compassionate, they, they, they um, can sustain their motivation for longer. They're more able to like, pick themselves up and, and try again when they do fail. They do things like they procrastinate less. What's procrastination? It's fear of failure. I kind of put it off because I don't want to try because if I fail and I, it's going to hurt too bad. But if it's okay to fail, okay, I'll give it a shot. Why not? You know, I'll do my best. And if it doesn't work out, I'll just see what I can learn and try again. It's just such, a, it's so much healthier in terms of doing, taking on new tasks. Uh, and it's also more effective because when you have your own support, when you have your own back, when you feel encouraged, you have more emotional resources to do your best. You know, it doesn't mean like everything you do is okay. Actually, maybe when you fail, you're supposed to learn from it. Okay, well, that didn't work out too well. Maybe I can try this differently next time. But, you know, it's not a big deal as opposed to shame, which just, so, so there's also a big difference that we need to make between the person and the behavior. Self-compassion is an unconditional source of self-worth. In, in terms of me as a person, it doesn't matter if I succeed or fail. It's kind of like with your child. You know, you hopefully you love your child unconditionally, whether they succeed or fail, no matter what they look like, no matter what they're doing in life. It's like an unconditional, the bottom line is unconditional acceptance of the person. But the behaviors, you know, maybe the behaviors aren't healthy. We don't want to accept unhealthy behaviors or situations. Maybe we're in a situation that's unhealthy, a job that's unhealthy, a relationship that's unhealthy, a political system that's unhealthy, right? It's not compassionate to accept harmful behaviors or situations because those cause harm. And so with self-compassion and, you know, coming to the issue, for instance, of, of body appearance, you can absolutely unconditionally accept yourself, no matter whether or not you're happy with your, even your health or your appearance. But it doesn't mean you aren't going to try to engage in healthy behaviors or situations. You do that because you care, not because you're inadequate, but just simply because you want, you know, you want to be as healthy as possible. That comes from a place of care. 
So acceptance and change do this really important dance and self-compassion. And that's where the, the fierce and the tender self-compassion come in. The tender self-compassion is as a person, we are good enough as people. We don't need to change or do anything different in order to be worthy of love and care. But we may want to change some of our behaviors or the situations we're in if they aren't healthy because we care, not because we are inadequate, but simply because we care. We want to be happy. So a lot of people listening to this podcast will, I think, can apply this directly to going on a diet, Yes. saying, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to be fierce. And maybe they're doing this diet to lose weight. Maybe they're doing it because they, they want to feel better. Whatever the reason is, maybe their doctor told them that they have to. Uh-huh. The reason comes from that. And it starts off strong and I'm going to be disciplined. And for a few days, it works. And then for whatever reason, it doesn't work anymore. Their life gets in the way. They eat something that they shouldn't, blah, 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 blah. And they find themselves with shame as the failure. You know, there's actually research on this. There was, there was a great study where they had, they they looked at, I think they were all women, college women who are all on a diet and and they wanted to see what happens with dieting lapses. So these were women who, for whatever reason, I don't know if, you know, there are healthy and unhealthy reasons to lose weight. You might want to for health reasons. And then they put them through the study that it was a, it was a fake a taste testing study and all the women, and by the way, there were lots of women, but they focused on the woman on a diet. They had to eat this really like greasy, sugary donut to taste it, say and give their opinion on it. So they basically made all the women blow their diets. Half the woman, they said, you know, trying to beat yourself up about it. Everyone had to eat this donut, try to be kind to yourself. They gave them self-compassion instructions. And then the other half of the woman, they didn't say anything, which meant the woman were probably like, oh God, I can't believe we did that. I mean, beating themselves up. And then they had a second taste testing session where they said, okay, here are these M&M candies. I want you to see if you like them. I'm going to go out of the room. I got to do something. I'll be back in a moment. And they counted how many M&Ms the woman ate. Those who were told to be self-compassionate about blowing their diet with the donut ate fewer M&Ms than those who beat themselves up about the donut. Because what happens is if you beat yourself up and you feel shame, then you actually, you might turn to food as a way to feel better or kind of shuts down your resolve. But so, and there's a fair number of of research like this. So in other words, if you're self-compassionate about failure, well, if one fails, it's not a big deal. Then you're much more able to just pick yourself up and try again. If you shame yourself, it's going to derail you. Yeah. And you said shame shuts down your ability to learn. So in that moment, there's information about, oh, how did this donut make you feel? There's so much to learn. But if we shift into shame, we are paralyzed and stuck. If we shift into self-compassion, we have that tenderness first that you helped Mm -hmm. us find, which is everybody messes up, you know, and what do I really need in this moment? And is a donut that really, you know, that big of a deal in the in the grand scheme of things. So I think you just bring up such a good point. So I love traveling and coming home to my bed because it's comfy and familiar. I love crawling into it. Well, what if you could take your bed on the road with you so that way you got good night's sleep while you're on a trip? And it's not your entire bed, but at least your bedding, which is the best part. Let me introduce you to Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding. 
Now, Cozy Earth is travel-friendly and hassle-free, and the bedding comes in these adorable totes, which makes it really easy for you to take it on trips with you. They also have really amazing loungewear, so if you're on a long flight, you can stay cool and comfy with Cozy Earth's temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew, and it'll add a touch of style to your travel ensemble as well. So whether you're exploring stuff near or far, take a little bit of home with you. Cozy Earth has everything you need to turn every moment into pure bliss. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code OUTWAY at checkout to get 35% off. And let them know that we sent you after you check out. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the amazing distinctions in your book that I think is really important to separate here is the distinction between self-compassion and self-esteem. They are polar opposites, you say, but often used interchangeably. 
So what's the difference and how can self-compassion step in when self-esteem deserts us? Right. I wouldn't say they're they're polar opposites. It really depends on where you get your self-esteem because actually self-compassion can be a healthy source of self-esteem. So what is self-esteem? It's it's an evaluation of self-worth. Am I a good person? Am I a worthy person? Am I worthless? Am I bad? So most people do not get their self-esteem from a healthy source, right? So so if you're very self-compassionate, you're going to feel worthy simply because you're a flawed human being worthy of respect. You know, the second you're born, you're worthy of kindness and compassion. So that's a healthy form of self-esteem. Most people get their self-esteem through social comparison. We have to be special and above average. You know, if I said, Lisa, yeah, your podcast, yes, average there'd be a little part of you that would cringe. If you said, hey, Kristen, you're an average researcher, there's a little part of me that would cringe. Like, so our most, usually our self-esteem is based on needing to feel a little better than other people. Just to, This is like baseline or is contingent on the three most common domains. So this is interesting for your audience. For women, the number one domain in which we invest our self-esteem, doesn't matter if you have a PhD or not, is perceived attractiveness. And that's because of our whole history of our value as a woman being because we needed to be attractive to a man in order, we couldn't even own property, right? We, we couldn't, we didn't even have dominion over our own children. We needed to be attractive to a man. And this is for heterosexual women, but back in the day, you know, they didn't really allow even any other possibility. So this is built into us. We're conditioned as women that we need to be attractive to be safe. And it's the number one domain in which we invest our self-esteem. For men, it's also important, but it's interesting. The research shows that the standards of what counts as attractive is, are so much higher than women that about in you know early, early adolescence for women, their self-esteem starts, take, starts taking a nosedive because they can't meet these impossible beauty standards. So there's that. And then two other domains are um, perceived approval. Do other people like me? And it's not like, do my best friends and mother like me? It's like other people, people on Instagram, people at work, you know, very vague, amorphous, and then success at work or whatever is important to you. Uh, and so it's contingent, which means it's a fair weather friend. It's there for us when times are good, but what happens when we don't have those things? We don't feel attractive enough or we aren't popular or, you know, we fail at something. It deserts us. Self-compassion is a stable friend. Research shows the sense of self-worth that comes with self-compassion is much more stable over time because it's always there for you, good times and bad. Can we talk a little bit about how self-compassion actually protects against eating disorders and what the research has to show there? Yeah, there's there's actually a lot of research on self-compassion and eating disorders as well as, you know, disordered eating. It's actually a, a really promising area of research because it makes a big difference. I'll just give you one example. I've had a few students who did research on uh, disordered eating. We had one study where I'm at the University of Texas at Austin, and we recruited women, again, who, who had body image issues, who weren't satisfied with their body. And we had them listen to the meditations, free meditations on my website for three weeks. Afterward, after just three weeks, we found not only were they um, less dissatisfied with their body, in other words, they had a more positive body image, this is really important. Their sense of self-worth became less contingent on how attractive they felt they were. That's what self-compassion gives you. You know, it, it moves that sense of worth from, am I attractive enough to, 
am I a human being? Yes, I'm a, I'm a flawed human being. Okay, that's good enough. I still care about myself, right? And there's a lot of research like that. And if people are interested, if you go to my website, I've got a whole category on, on self-compassion and body image and, and eating issues. But yeah, a lot of research shows it's very effective. In fact, personally, I think it'd be very hard to sustain losing weight or you know exercising more, whatever your goals are. You can do it with self-criticism. It, it can be done. It has been done but it's not sustainable. But if you do it just from, I don't need to change one iota to be beautiful, to be worthy of love, care, kindness, but I may want to change to be a little more healthier for whatever reasons. That's my opinion, not sustainable without self-compassion. It's just so interesting because I don't think people really understand how the breath of self-compassion and how it is the underlying like carpet that we need to stand on yeah. And yet it's never been laid for us or or even really shown what it is. I think a lot of people think that if I'm too kind to myself, I won't be good at work or be good at this or that. You know, it, yeah. it really isn't. But but we actually need it to be the best versions of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And so back to your question about eating. Uh, so self-compassion is linked to more intuitive eating, right? which refers to basically stopping when you're full. But they found that people who are trained to be more self-compassionate were less likely to emotionally eat because basically what compassion is, it's also not only is it directly related to our body image and our eating, but just in terms of um, how we deal with difficult emotions. I mean, oftentimes eating is a way to just try to cope with difficult emotions. Again, very, very natural. Of course, we don't want to hurt. So we try to do whatever we can to make us feel better. It's totally natural. But with self-compassion, when you can hold those painful feelings with care and with kindness, and while everyone's hurting, it's not just me. And how can I help myself in the moment? It actually gives us another resource to use for our painful emotions so that we don't have to rely on you know, behaviors which may be less healthy for us. Uh, one last question, because I know we're running low on time here. You talk a lot about perfectionism in your new book. And yeah. again, another amazing distinction, because you talk about two different types of perfectionism. Yeah. Can you break those types down for us? Yeah. So, you know, not all perfectionism is bad. So there's adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism. So if you're, a, you know, like a top athlete, you want to have super high standards if you really want to be at the top of your game, you know, so there's nothing wrong with having high standards for yourself and actually self-compassionate people, their standards are as high as everyone else's. What becomes maladaptive about perfectionism is when you beat yourself up and you don't meet your standards, right? You can, you can aim for the moon. Why not? But what do you do when you don't reach your goals? And so if you beat yourself up, if you criticize yourself, if you shame yourself, that's really maladaptive. Not only does it lead to things like depression and anxiety and poor mental health, um, it actually is going to undermine your ability to achieve in the end because of all the anxiety you put yourself through, which actually makes it harder for you to achieve your goals. For instance, I just had this new book. I would love it to be a number one New York Times bestseller. Go for it. I'm doing everything I can. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen, but well, you never know. You never know. But you know, so if I, if I said, okay, if I don't achieve that, then I'm going to shame myself. Oh, I must be worthless as a writer because I'm not, don't have a number one New York Times bestseller. How is that going to help me? You know, and that's probably just going to, it's going to cause me a lot of emotional pain. And so adaptive perfectionism, yeah, I'm going to do my best. I want to have this book get as far and as wide as possible, 
but it says nothing about my sense of self-worth. You know, and I keep coming back to that. And it's so important that our self-worth, our worthiness is not predicated on anything. What, what we look like, whether we've achieved or not. You know, we, I, we actually, the phrase I use is um, compassionate mess. The goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. In other words, you're still worthy no matter how much of a mess you are. <laughs> and your goal becomes just to hold that mess in compassion. Your, your goal becomes not getting it right, but opening your heart. And when you do that, ironically, kind of counterintuitively, it actually makes it easier to get it right because you're supporting yourself in your goals. And so again, with perfectionism, the more you realize, hey, it doesn't matter if I fail, I'm still worthy, then that's going to give you the resources, again, available to say, well, I failed. Okay, everyone fails. What can I learn from this? Let me try again. It's not a big deal that I failed. And those, we're actually teaching self-compassion to athletes. That's the reason I talked about top-tier athletes. If you're an athlete and you miss a shot or field goal or something and you beat yourself up, you've lost the game for your, enti- for your entire team. You're going to fold. You have to be able to deal productively with failure, not shame yourself to say, okay, maybe you notice something. Can I, oh, I see, I was doing this. That wasn't as helpful to be able to keep trying and uh, that eventually succeed. Well, first of all, um, anyone who is interested in this book, which is all of you, let's help make it a bestseller by <laughs> giving it a, a, a one click over on Amazon. I'll link the book below um, so you all can check that out because it, the most important thing, like you said, is not so you become a best selling author, no. like, but because it so that it reaches the people I mean, I I kind of, that's, I used to, sometimes I joke, I'm a self-compassion evangelist, but the reason I am is because no one ever told us, and it's not rocket science. You don't have to like meditate and reach some state of samadhi or something like that. You, You already know how to be compassionate to others, especially women, because we're raised to be compassion experts. We know how to use our tone of voice. We know what to say to others. So all we got to do is give, do this little U-turn. You know, get over these fears that it's going to make us lazy and self-indulgent. It doesn't. The research shows absolutely not. You know, the only way you'll know for sure is if you try it out, but it's actually not hard. It's like we have a superpower in our back pocket. We don't even know it's there. And so that's kind of my mission in life is to spread the good, good words, you know, hey, you've got a resource is available to you, you can use it. It'll make a huge difference mm-hmm. in your health and happiness. We're also going to link those free re- resources from your website below you. as well. Great. But one of the things that you said that really resonated with me is that self-compassion allows us to see common humanity better. Yes. And the fact that we are always changing. So if, if we want to feel perfect, sticking with perfectionism for a minute, mm-hmm. about our looks, right? We're set up for failure in a society where we are aging. That's not to say that you can't, you know, feel beautiful and do whatever you need to do, wear makeup or any changes that you want to make, you know, sure. I'm all for all that. But we have to realize that we can't always be number one yeah. with anything. I'm 54. I'm so I, I've been going through this. For, I can't even tell you the different self-compassion is made. I mean, like after 50, you become invisible. It's really true. You know, even if you're looking good that day, you know, you don't get any attention <laughs> past 50. And this is like, and so my self-compassion practice really helped me open to that. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to open to the pain of it. It's foolish to say, oh, I don't care. Yeah, it does hurt. It does hurt because you know, that's kind of the way we're conditioned. But when you really just open with compassion and really remind yourself that 
Well, not only is your worth not predicated on it, if you really trace back why we're only valued before 50, it's many ways to serve the patriarchy. I mean, you have to kind of own that. It's like, I'm not going to support that system. Are you kidding? No way. <laughs> but but then again, we we do need to open to it. We don't want to shove it down, pretend it's not there. It's natural. We feel, yeah, it's, I, you know, I don't look like I did when I was 30. And so you feel that pain, but you don't stick with it. And you give yourself compassion and support, and then you just let it go. That, that's the thing about self-compassion is it doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't pretend pain isn't there if it is. But you hold that pain, you open to it, you give yourself support, and then it just processes and it moves on. We don't get stuck in it, which is um, what happens when we don't have self-compassion. We get stuck in those negative feelings and then we get derailed. And I just think thinking that everything is always in motion is such a helpful thing to understand, because yeah. even if our perfectionism isn't rooted in our looks, if it's rooted in our work, I mean, I'm thinking yes. of, I'm just going to give an, a, you know, Beyonce, we all think Beyonce must have it so easy. It's like, well, if she's not coming out with a new song to keep her relevant with that, keep her in the best hits, top hits, yeah. whatever, then if her, all of her worth is stuck into being the best at all times, Absolutely. she's exhausted, you know? Exactly. So we have to recognize that we're not always going to be at the top of the totem pole, whether we're scoring that goal, winning the thing, writing the book, getting a yes. promotion, we're also going to get fired. We're going to move down on the list of being the best. We're going to be less attractive uh, conventionally, you know, in society. Like well, all we're going to die gonna at some point. And, and we're it's going to happen to everyone eventually, right? That's, that's, that's the truth. You know, one of the reasons I really emphasize the fierce self-compassion is because although all this is true, people immediately say, but that means I'm going to stop trying. And it's actually mm. not the case. What changes is the reason you try. You don't try to do better, to be adequate or to be acceptable. You try simply because you care. And that means at some point, if you're trying is harmful, you're over trying, you're striving, you're stuck, you're becoming you know, maladaptive in, in your goals, then you pull back. You know, the ideal parent is such a good example. Of course you want your child, if they can, to go to college or to get, you know, have a good career. You want them to be happy. You're going to support them. You're going to do what you can to help. But your love for them isn't contingent on it. And the more you can say, hey, I'm here for you regardless, the more, the more, the more secure they'll feel and probably the better chances they'll have of succeeding. But, you know, life happens. You can't, we, and we aren't in total control either. And then self-compassion, again, is this safety net that no matter what happens, you're okay. No matter how you look, you are a beautiful human being worthy of love and care and respect. And you're going to try to be as healthy and happy as possible if you care about yourself. The two go, they, they feed each other. They don't work in opposition. Thank you so much for sharing your book, Fierce Compassion, with us and for really breaking down the nuance of how self-compassion can heal and hold space for us for future pain that we will endeavor <laughs> nonetheless. So compassion thank you so best. much. Just keep that in mind. My, my goal of practice is to be a compassion. You can do that. <laughs> I know. I wish Amy was here to help. She makes um, clothing with like cute phrases. Uh -huh. I think we might need one with your quote that says, I'm a compassionate mess. Yes. And it's really <laughs> enough. As long as you have that compassion, it's, it's enough. An open heart. Isn't that what we really want at the end of the day? An open heart. An open heart, an ability to listen, to hear, and to show up as our, our best selves, whatever that looks like. Authentic. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you again for your time and thanks for being a guest. Thanks, Lisa.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.